We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management, archaeology, and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 181 for January 15th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. And on today's episode, it's Bill White and I talking from the 2020 Society for Historical and Underwater Archaeology Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. We talk about all kinds of things. So, what do I say? So put down your Boston baked beans and... So grab a spoon and get your bowl of Boston <laughs> baked beans because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Chris Webster. Joining me today from the other end of the table is Bill White. <laughs> the other end of the table, yeah. Here in Boston at SHA 2020, uh, in this rapidly closing down book room. As we started to record, I was you know, getting really concerned that they're going to kick us out. And Yeah, I, I'm so surprised. Just let's talk about that for a second, because I had a... <laughs> I was in the tech room version of the book room, just like at the end here for the last two days. And that's only uh, Thursday and Friday, right? So that was done at five o'clock yesterday. And then I had a, a meeting that I had to take from my hotel room because it was an online Zoom meeting. So, uh, and the internet here is garbage. So I had yeah, to do it in my I'm, hotel that's room. That's also an extraordinary, like, yeah. first of all, it absolutely made me realize how tethered we are to these Ugh. technologies. Yeah. Well, we'll it's, talk- it's one thing to not have internet and it's another thing to your phone not to work. So then you can't even text your yeah. Well, let's talk about that from a conference standpoint here in a second. Yeah. But anyway, I, I had this meeting. It went till about noon. And then I actually walked around, got some coffee. And then I came here. And it was about uh, probably just a little after one when I came into the exhibit hall here. And this conference still goes to like five today. Yeah. And yet this place was probably 50% cleared out at like one o'clock. Like all the yeah. exhibitors had left. Uh, well, you know, I first of all, I'd have to say that I was happy and pleased to see several different book publishers that had real books. Yeah. Because I've gone so many other times when they, you know, supposedly have a book room. Gone are the days where I, there was, there used to be these awesome used book vendors. Yeah. They'd show up with these antique books. Oh yeah. And they'd have this, you know, big table. I saw it at the SAA in Albuquerque this last time. Yeah. Now they kind of don't really do that anymore. I think it's because they can sell all their stuff on Amazon. It's easier that way anyhow. So because of that, a lot of times the publishers don't really show up with actual books. Yeah. So you, or they only come with, you know, 10 of their most popular ones that are all $170. <laughs> and then you get this four page list of all these other rad books that it would have been great to see. But yeah, so I'm glad that they had that. However, you're right. They, they quit kind of early. Yeah. They quit kind of early. It's a volunteer thing though. So I can see how, you know, people have been here for yeah. three days. They're just done with trying to sell books and done with sitting behind here with no well, internet. For some of these people, it's a volunteer thing. You can tell some of the vendors that are still set up like this guy with the, uh, with the tools over yeah, here. Yeah. This guy's amazing. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's trying to sell as much as he can, so he's yeah. going to shut down at the last minute. Um, but you're right. The other vendors there, there's like some books laying on tables and they like peace out. Some like leftover yeah. books. Yeah. Yeah. But Hey, some, uh, some conference stuff, especially with the SAs coming up and other regional conferences, the society for California archeology conference is coming up in uh, late March. Come see me at the wild note booth there. Uh, I'm also giving a paper there on, uh, uh, archeology span and public outreach using the podcast network. I like but, it. Yeah. But anyway, uh, looking at those, you can never trust conference Wi-Fi. And I was talking to, <laughs> I was talking to April Camp Whitaker of the Archaeology Show, also a grad student at ASU, and she went to a number of presentations where people expected to pull their presentations down from like Google Drive or Google Slides oh, or something boy. like that, and they just couldn't do it. They just didn't yeah. have access to their presentation because the internet had failed or wasn't strong enough. Uh-huh. And they're doing this as they're being called up to do their paper. They're like, oh, let's just click on this link. Fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and then also my paper this time, I I did a 3D model of a um, of a site. Yeah. As I was making my uh, presentation, I thought, you know what, it'd be a good idea. Well, also, I I had a 3D modeling workshop beforehand, and I thought just Sunday, mm-hmm. as I'm getting ready to go, a couple of days <laughs> in advance, I might want to just download all this stuff and actually save right. it on my computer, not even have it in Dropbox, have it actually on the C drive. 
So I did it, and then I showed up, and I was like, man, I'm just, I don't know how I knew that this was going to happen, because <laughs> it was all perfectly saved on there. I could just click transfer to a jump drive and do it, you know, yep. I guess the old-fashioned way. You're just but, experienced at conferences. Subconsciously, yeah. you knew it was going to yeah, fail. Yeah, well, the nervousness, right? Like, yeah. Also, this wasn't my first conference. And <laughs> my very first SHA ever was the worst presentation that I have ever seen anyone. My my mom, so it was the conference in York. The, I went, this is the first time I gave a presentation. Yeah. So in York, I think 2004 or something like that, mm-hmm. I was supposed to give a 15-minute talk on what was then my master's project. I worked on this thing all winter break. Yeah. I'd practiced it several different times. I'd actually written a paper. I had it all printed out and everything. I uh, had my slides all saved on a drive. And then at that time, you know, I didn't carry my whole laptop over to York, right? Sure. I just went. I had my thing saved and, you know, backed up. Mm -hmm. So I checked out. They had laptops that you could borrow there. Uh, So I borrowed one real fast to look through my slides, make sure everything was uh, working out properly. And when I opened it up, it was a Europe. There was a UK version of PowerPoint, right? Oh. So I opened it up, <laughs> and then as I saved it, it was like, you know, some of the properties on this will not transfer. Uh, Are you sure you want to save, right? Yeah. And, I, and it didn't. You know, you see that all the time. You just click yes, like every single time, <laughs> right. right? Well. I had downloaded some, you know, free background designs for my slides. Yeah. And it just turned them all into like fluorescent blues and greens and stuff like that. Oh my god. And a couple of my slides the in, the picture disappeared. Yeah. So, I'm giving this talk, my mom bought me a nice suit, which mm-hmm. I still have to this day to wear to the conference man i got so nervous when i was up there it was just i was pouring with sweat pouring (laughs) with sweat i sweated through the suit through all my clothes and through this you know like uh wool suit yeah and as i was standing there just wiping the sweat there was just you know (laughs) you've seen that scene in uh airplane where he's trying to land the airplane and the the sweat (laughs) is just yeah and it was just rivers of sweat (laughs) i'm standing there and everybody just like they couldn't even really look at my face they just had to look away (laughs) Because they couldn't even <laughs> handle the pain that was happening to this guy. And after I finished that, I was like, okay, that's the worst that could ever happen in a 15-minute talk. That's right. the worst experience. It's all up from it there. It can never be worse than this. And I was right. It, it has never been worse than that. Yeah. I've seen other people give disaster talks, too, at SHA. But that's my disaster talk story. Fortunately, it was my first talk. Yeah. So I got the worst one out of my, out of my way right away. Nice. But having had that happen once before, now I save the stuff. Yeah. It's saved on a drive. I don't rely on internet. It, I even bring my own computer, my own, well, now I bring a USB cord, but it used sure. to be a VGA cord, all this stuff in my backpack. Yeah. Because if I'm giving a talk and everything goes you know, haywire, I can pull at least my laptop out real quick and do yeah. my talk without well, too much you know, disturbance. With the amount of prep that people do for these papers and, and, and you know, practicing them and preparing them and just the amount of time and, and, and energy put into just doing it, let alone the research that led to the paper, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so getting all this stuff done and then showing up to the conference and, and not really thinking about presenting it. Because yeah. as far as I'm concerned, I show up with... Uh, I've got a Mac, so I've got all the dongles oh, that you've I can plug have, in. Yeah, you yeah. got to be. You're probably oh. used to the same thing showing yeah. up, and then they've got some Microsoft, uh, you know, projector, <laughs> yeah. and you've got to, yeah, yeah. So I've got everything I need with me at all times to be able to plug into whatever projector is there. Because you also can't assume, even in 2020, that the projector is going to have an HDMI port. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, it could be something. Well, wacky. It could be uh, USB C. Now I'm starting to see that a lot of places, yeah, well, which I feel is, is a good transition yeah. right on because there's so many other devices you know there's a lot of tablets there's a lot of laptops phones all using the same shape we had usb for what 10 15 years Mm -hmm. but now they're moving away from that thing yeah but what a shock to come there and see that it's either the mini hdmi or the usb c and that's all your computer doesn't have that thing just i mean short of bringing your own projector seriously like yeah be prepared. I don't know what yeah. else to say. Be prepared. Well, usually at these bigger conferences, they have a, a laptop that's up there or the presenter brought a laptop, yeah. the, the session organizer brought a laptop, but you just need the ability to either A, plug your laptop into anything as a worst case scenario, or B, yeah. put it on a jump drive or put it on an SD card uh-huh. or put it on, just have all the scenarios covered. Yep. You know, like for example, if somebody went up there and wasn't as prepared as say I am with all my dongles, yeah. 
my computer does not have a regular USB port. It's got four USB-C ports. Huh. But I've got things that I can plug into a, a USB into. Uh-huh. So, so I'm organizing a session and somebody brings me a jump drive, I can still plug into yeah. it. You know, but you have to plan for the fact yeah. that somebody might not have that. Yeah, and also, you know, I, I, all I would have to say is you're going to make it, it's 15 minutes, right? Right. So a couple of things. Disaster talks happen. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Hopefully your first one or only one is a 15 minute talk instead of like a one hour interview or, yeah. you know, an invited lecture somewhere or sure. you've got to speak to a tribe or a department of transportation. Right. And then your disaster strikes right then. Right. So <laughs> first of all, like it's going to happen someday to you. It's OK. It's just you're going to live through it. Don't worry. Just pick yourself up. Humpty Dumpty. Yeah. Right. Pick up all the pieces. The other, the other thing of that is just like you were saying, be prepared, you yeah. know, Boy Scout motto, be ready. Mm-hmm. So disaster could strike at any time when you're giving your talk, make sure that you have your electronic stuff saved or backed up or, yeah. you know, cause you, you're right. You can't rely on it. And you know, the internet here is not great. My cell reception is not great. It's as if we're in, you know, a cold war bunker or something like that, but it's actually a luxury hotel. Yeah. Uh, however, I would say that the 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 AV folks here are like the Delta Force, man. They are fast, <laughs> yeah. excellent, hooking it up. I mean, some people were saying something that they saw, uh, you know, one of the AV people have problem like turning something on. That wasn't my experience. These yeah. guys were skilled, you know, sound technicians that knew their equipment, that had all the right wires. They would come in on a cart. They have like everything to set a whole room up because the, the session that I was in this year, it had a projector just sitting on a podium and no cords to anything, mm-hmm. no microphone, no <laughs> cord to the projector, no screen, just like nothing. Yeah. It was just a room with chairs in it and a projector sitting in the middle. No oh, man. Well, I had a podium to speak at, too. Yeah. And in about five minutes, one technician, actually, no, two guys, because one of the things actually takes two guys to hold up for the screen oh, to yeah. set it up while one guy, you know, sets up the tripod. Two guys set it up. Ten minutes. Nice. Fully functional presentation room. No monkey time with the projector. It worked yeah. on these different file types. Works on a Mac. Worked on, you know, PC. Yeah. So the Internet wasn't so great, but that's beyond there. Yeah. purview or whatever, what right. their range of services, but their actual services, I thought, I felt like they did a great job. Well, the only, I, I saw two examples, um, of AV in the, in the tech room here at the end of the book room. Um, one of them is the, they had TVs, big TVs on monitor stands and they set those up pretty fast. You're right. I mean, they were like, yeah. they were like ninjas, right? They knew what they were. And then we've actually, while we've been recording, they've just taken all of it down yeah. and, uh, they're super fast. Yeah. They just took two 50 inch TVs, flat <laughs> yeah. screens that were on tripods right now while we were recording this. So yeah, yeah. folks who are listening to this behind us, they just did that. Yeah. But the one thing that they screwed, that they kind of screwed up and this is not uh, uncommon to most people. So this is my PSA to the world right now. Anybody listening, <laughs> if you have a wireless router, cause we complained about the Wi-Fi in this room. We were supposed to have a special SHA um, SSID, which is what you see when you go to access your, your wireless internet, right? Um, it's supposed to be an SHA 2021, but it wasn't picking up yeah. in this room. It was picking up like out in the lobby or something. So they brought in uh, a Wi-Fi router that was the second network for that. Well, the first thing they did was they plugged the the wireless router into the wall and turned it on and said, look, I'm getting a full signal. And I was like, yeah, but there's nothing plugged into it because people in this day and age have disconnected Wi-Fi. Because we say Wi-Fi is strong, right? Yeah. But the Wi-Fi is really just what's coming from the wireless router. If it's not sending anything out from the internet, from yeah. like a modem plugged into it, yeah. think about what you have at home. And that's even problematic because a lot of the devices from cable companies these days are the, the modem and the router in one. Yeah. And so people kind of equate those together, but you got to understand if you've got a special Wi-Fi router that's putting out a nice strong signal, it can put out a strong signal of actually nothing and there's nothing attached to it. So then they had to bring in, um, there's nowhere to plug into the ethernet behind me here. So they brought in this basically wireless repeater and they had the antenna sitting right on the plugs for the uh, power outlet right there. And I was like, first off, you've got a wireless antenna trying to pick up the internet that's already weak here in the hotel to repeat it out to the Wi-Fi router. 
and it's sitting next to a whole bunch of electricity. That's just going to interfere with the signal. So I moved it up to the to the chair rail here and trying to get it, you know, a little higher antenna, but yeah. it was still garbage internet yeah. and it just wasn't working. Well, so. I was in a 3D session and we were in a single room. Yeah. So we didn't have all those same, you know, issues because there wasn't a bunch of electrical stuff that was right next to the place where they put it in. I mean, yeah. like I said, I think they did a pretty good job. However, it kept dropping us. And once again, going back to the be prepared, there were some, I mean, we had to download software. We had to have Blender and uh, I can't remember what the other one was. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was a instant meshes. Mm-hmm. And then we needed to download the files to be able to open them up in Blender so that we could actually do our work through the workshop. Right. Well, I, you know, it wasn't said in the email. It was just kind of like, here's three softwares. You got to have these, you know, you need to install them on your computer. And just like you were saying, you know, if it's in the email, you can just click on it and in 10 seconds, download that thing and install it in your computer. A couple of folks saw the email and they didn't download it. But like I said, having had my experience before and being concerned about that this (laughs) is going to be a problem, I actually did it. Well, they did the same thing, brought in a new Wi-Fi for just that room for that workshop. And folks were trying to rely on it, and several people actually couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't download the stuff for a hundred and fifty dollar workshop that they'd gone three thousand miles to go to. Yeah, only at the very last minute to not be able to actually do the workshop because they couldn't get Wi-Fi. Well, I'm not staying at the hotel though. Is it? How is it in the rooms? I'm not at this hotel either. I'm at my I'm yeah. at my own hotel uh, right. down the street, which the Wi-Fi there is pretty good actually. Yeah. So well, um, I mean, we we're complaining about the Wi-Fi, but that's seriously like one of the lowest hanging because they, yeah. they have a phenomenal thing called Italy that's pretty much attached. <laughs> I'd never experienced this. And then I, yeah. half of my meals so far have been at this one <sighs> Mine too. super Italian restaurant. Slash grocery store. Yeah, slash Ikea. Yeah. But you slash don't have to like build five it. restaurants. It's like a culinary Ikea that you don't have to actually cook anything. <laughs> it's just like that. When you're in there, you're just trapped in the maze, but right. you're just eating your way through it. Like, uh, you know, this yeah. actually, it feels good. I know. Italy's pretty eating. great. Yeah. Yeah, I might eat there after we're done recording. And I also um, did the um, Freedom Tour, too. So, so well, How was you know, that? Uh, well, I didn't do the whole thing, but excellent. Yeah. They, uh, they actually have a brick line in the sidewalk so that you can just go from the Old North Church to, you know, Paul Revere's house to the, wow. you know, Old Meeting House. And Is it and, a loop? Like you end up back in the same spot? No, you end up like south of here. It's long. It's it really? probably three miles long or so, wow. two miles long at least. We okay. walked at least a mile of it. It zigzags around. Mm-hmm. So we only did a, a big chunk and then ended up at uh, Boston Garden and um, mm-hmm. uh, the 54th Massachusetts Monument mm-hmm. that's there. So, you know, it was great. The NPS has a pretty cool app you can download so you can actually listen and have audio. They'll yeah. narrate like 30 second spots of, you know, this is what happened for the Boston Massacre. This is why why Faneuil Hall is, you know, famous. Sure. And uh, many of these things are NPS units, so you can show up and... We showed up to Faneuil Hall, and uh, there was a narrator, an NPS nice. narrator that was telling us about, you know, giving uh, anti-slavery speeches, and you know, presidents still go there. You know, sure. actually, when I was there, I think I have seen it before on CNN, where Obama or one of the presidents was giving a talk from there, and you know, <laughs> it's it, it's one of those kind of places, right? Yeah. So being from the West, you only hear about these, you know, history events or whatever that happened back east. But for Boston, so many of those things happen in like a one mile square. Right. It's crazy. Nice. All right. Well, let's take a short break uh, for some advertisements for the Archaeology Podcast Network. And and before we do that break, I'll let you know that we have a new advertising manager and an awesome way to do podcast ads like you've never heard of before. And uh, we can do job advertisements, things like that, that are just showing up for even down to the zip code level. So contact uh, our new advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. And we'll be back to the SHAs in Boston here shortly. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code CRMARC. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. And we're back. This is Chris Webster and Bill White from the Society for Historical Archaeology. Sorry, I'll say the full thing. Society for Historical and Underwater Archaeology yep. Conference. I always forget the underwater yeah. part. <laughs> Many do. However, uh, I've seen some pretty good stuff. Underwater yeah. talks, you know. Yeah, actually, we just interviewed a, uh, a fantastic woman named Stephanie um, Gondula. Uh, I, I probably said yeah. that wrong yeah, again. Yeah, I know. It's difficult. I know. But but Stephanie... She's a maritime archaeologist, and uh, if you want to hear Thunder her interview, Bay. yeah, up in Michigan, yeah. uh, go check her out on the um, Archaeology Show podcast. Uh-huh. So anyway, Bill, you gave a talk yesterday, and I was it was the one time, very, very slow here in the tech room when I was at the booth for Wild Note, but it was the one time where I got stuck talking to somebody for like 45 <laughs> minutes, and I couldn't make it over to your talk. So why don't you tell us, tell us all about it? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, I was telling my wife before I came here that it's the first time maybe ever, or the first time in a long time that I was actually excited to give a talk (laughs) because it's about this site that I've been, I just couldn't get it out of my head for about five years. Um, the, the, the entire thing in a nutshell is when I was doing my dissertation in 2014, I came across this newspaper front page article about this shootout that happened with this uh, African-American, they called him a hermit, a recluse, a uh, World War One veteran who was living in the Boise foothills. Uh, his name was Pearl Royal Hendrickson. Pearl Royal. Pearl Royal Hendrickson. That's an amazing name. Pearl. That's his. <laughs> born, it makes it easy to look through census records. Right. You know, there's only going to be, you know, you can go on Ancestry and type in like, you know, Pearl Hendrickson and then choose male for the gender and there's yeah. only going to be one. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, I, I've, I've been able to find some of the, uh, some of historical documents mm-hmm. um, just, just because of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the story goes on... Um, the morning of August 1st, 1940, some uh, U.S. Marshals came to serve him a warrant, and he ended up shooting and killing one. Wow. And there was a Boise police captain that was with him that went back down. This this place where it's at is about, I think, seven miles in the Boise foothills away from the city limits. Mm-hmm. And it's on a road that... I don't know how good it was in 1940, but these days it's kind of, you know, uh, rutted out and difficult to to traverse. It's mainly like a four-wheel, you know, like a two-track, sure. basically. So uh, they, they went all the way up there, and um, he shot one of the marshals, killing him. The other officers went back down to town, got another U.S. marshal to come back up there with six other police officers mm. to try and, you know, get him out of there. And he ended up using a, a rifle and shooting one of them in the face and killing the other marshal. So he killed two U.S. marshals wow. and pinned down the other officers behind this car. Uh, as word got out, more and more law enforcement came kept coming up there. Mm-hmm. But he was, you know, using terrain and he had armored his cabin with car parts and other stuff. So he he was he went on a three hour firefight where, wow. you know, as the actual accounts on how many people there are, uh, they vary, but anywhere from 30 to 60 law enforcement shooting for hours at this cabin. <laughs> uh, they threw sticks of dynamite at it uh, that didn't blow it up. Eventually they caught it on fire with some incendiary rounds. Mm-hmm. So this thing is burning. He's returning fire on two sides. There's law enforcement. And after about two hours of the firefight, Uh, maybe two and a half hours, uh, an FBI agent shows up from Boise and organizes all the law enforcement to, you know, shoot in different, you know, Mm -hmm. covery fire for people to move forward and to advance on the cabin. And now they get up to the cabin and they get him out and he's mortally wounded. He dies on the way 
to, to Boise, right? Yeah. So the, the story was just, I mean, growing up in Idaho, that's that Wild West shootout. But yeah. it, it doesn't have all the touristy stuff. Like, they don't have all the shootouts that I know of in Idaho. They all have a sign that are like, you know, right here, there was a duel on, you know, 1885 or whatever. Right. right? This place, there's no sign, there's no marker, there's no nothing. First, I like the phrase, all the shootouts in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> just tells you something. Well, you live in Nevada, too. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. pretty sure there are shootouts. Quite like a few. You go, go to the old town, like, right here on this corner, someone <laughs> shot a guy to death. And, like, yeah. we're, you know, we're commemorating it. Well, yeah, that's that's how it is in Idaho. <laughs> So um, anyway, uh, we we use GLO records and uh, other maps to locate the landform where it's more mm-hmm. likely for this to be and uh, did some survey as best as we could. We tried to do metal detector surveys systematically, but it's all overgrown with brush up to your chest. And so the it's kind of hard to sweep a metal detector if it runs into branches and you have to just yeah. jam it through. So that didn't really, that wasn't as fruitful as it well, could have been. I mean, before you continue, I'm, I'm really surprised that the, I mean, this was 1940, you said, yeah. right? I'm really surprised the location is so lost. I mean, did the cabin just utterly burn to the ground? No. Well, so yeah, the cabin caught on fire and then yeah. I have a feeling and the forest service doesn't have any records of this. Yeah. The whole thing was to evict people who were living up there and working claims so that they could build a, a camping area. Oh, okay. So they bought these properties. Pearl, you know, black people weren't allowed to own land in 1940 in Boise. So he had to lease it from a white guy, and the white guy sold the land, right? Right, of course. So then Pearl tried to say that he had several mining claims that are patented, and that was what he was trying to fight, and that, Mm -hmm. you know, they needed to compensate him, or that, you know, he didn't want to leave, right? Sure. But that didn't work out, so he lost the court case, and that's how the gun fight ended up starting, right? Yeah. Um... So I have a feeling that they raised the cabin and raised any of those squatters' cabins because uh, they're building a campground, right? Well, yeah. they never ended up building the campground, thank goodness, because that would have probably gotten rid of all traces of this. Mm-hmm. Because of those activities, it just looks, and also because it's a four-wheeling place where people still go up there and shoot. I mm-hmm. mean, there's a lot of you know f- different kinds of handguns and stuff, and uh, other ARs and rounds modern, all over the place. Yeah, modern rifle rounds that are around there. So people go up there and shoot. People have bottles and they're blasting them and stuff, or targets and stuff like that. So uh, it it was a lot of stuff that just looks like what we would call an artifact scatter, right? Sure. So you go to this area. There's all this garbage. Oh wait, there's some stuff from the 1930s. Is it intact? I don't know. Kind of looks mm-hmm. torn up. Yeah, you're right. There's four-wheeler tracks and a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, there's no real site integrity, and we just move on, right? Right. And so that kind of the Forest Service, archeo- I went out with him, Forest Service archaeologist Joe Bergstrom, Boise National Forest, he did a survey and recorded a lot of the privies that they built for the campground, mm-hmm. and they saw those artifacts and were like, this doesn't look like a site. <laughs> I mean, it's mixed in with a whole bunch of other roadside stuff. Sure. What is this? Yeah. It's an artifact scatter and noted the location. Then after I started sending emails around, he's like, wait a minute, that was the place? We go back out there and then saw a feature that, you know, looks, it looks natural until you start really looking at it. Mm-hmm. And then you can see it's rectangular and that there's, you know, vertical rocks and stuff yeah. that amongst all this glass is a concentration of 1930s glass, right? So like you start putting things together, there's electrical uh, transistors and wires and stuff that there's no electrical wires anywhere around sure. there now. So you start seeing this 1940s, 1930s stuff, and that's how you put it together yeah. that it's actually, you know, a site. Yeah. yeah so we found it and then, uh, I used a drone to 3d model it. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So what's going to, I mean, what's, what's going to happen to it now? Yeah, we've been thinking about it. Um, it's recorded as an archeological site. It's far enough away from the road that they do have a planned timber sale that's going to go through there. So there's going to be some road maintenance, but where it's at, it's not really big enough for, you know, a cat or any, you know, a grader to sure. turn around or something like that. So there's other places where the equipment will be staged. Yeah. So there's no, not going to be any impacts from that activity. And the Boise National Forest needs funding and they need help and they can't really police every single site so putting a sign there is just going to open it to looting and metal detecting and a whole bunch of other shit so it's just going to stay as an archaeological site for now so was he because there was a news story about it and you know i mean people died and and uh it was so important like that does any of that make it eligible for listing on the state or national register yeah Yeah. and it, it does have artifacts you know and it has a feature sure so it is an archaeological site yeah um yeah it is you know i think it meets nhpa 
eligibility. Are you going to try to get it nominated? Go through that process Ooh. and actually get it listed? Do you think it's recommended eligible? You're right. I should actually go because dis- recommended distance. is not. Yeah, I know. Is not I know. On. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, my my thing. I know that they are like overworked at the Boise National Forest, so sure. to create more work by having this, you know, if it would cause more work for them, I don't know what their requirements are. So right. what is, what's the Forest Service? I I hope anyone listening, if they're Forest Service, if it is an actual. Uh, site that's on the National Register, is there additional obligations that the uh, agency has to do for those sites? I I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. My guess would be I hope be somebody that, emails us and tells me the yeah. answer. My guess would be that they just have to, they now have to 100% avoid it. And, and if there's preservation uh, available. I don't know what kind of preservation you would do because it's already mostly buried. So well, no, it's, it's right on the surface. But it's not at... They'd it, have to reroute biggest, four-wheeler it, tracks. No, it, it's it's far enough. The the main concentration of artifacts, the feature, they're far enough off the road in an inconspicuous place sure. under some brush. So it's not really a thing that would. I don't think anyone's gonna. You know. Yeah. There is a stream there. I guess if someone tried to channelize or. Yeah, well, you know, that's change on that or whatever. Land, yeah. So, yeah. So I don't think that. Yeah, it is on the Forest Service land, so yeah. we don't have to worry about them installing a cattle tank or a pump or right. something like that. Well, and now so. they know where it's at either way. Yeah. So even if it's potentially eligible, they have to just you know avoid it regardless. Yeah. So it's either that or do a full scale excavation, you know, and dig it up. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and Joe, I he's of the just protect it. Yeah. I think everyone at the Forest Service there, they found it and they're like, "Holy cow, this is amazing!" Nice. But I mean, we didn't go on the news or anything and. Yeah. Show where the location is. And uh, I, I thought yeah. about having uh, volunteer metal detectors help us, metal detectorists. Mm-hmm. But given the difficulty and the fact that we got the location, I mean, what more would sure. having a bunch of people go out there and. It would just open it up to the community. Uh-huh, and yeah. more people would know where it's at. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you could drive by your whole life and never know that right. it's right there. Are there, uh, do you know in your research, are there any descendants or anything like that? Because it doesn't sound like he probably had kids, but uh, what about other family members or anything like that? Does anything come up? Well, he did have um, seven brothers and sisters. So Jeez. He's, in Boise he's area? A, no, no. Uh, he's from Topeka, Kansas. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah so he has relatives, yeah. um, but I haven't contacted any of them. Right. I didn't know if I found the site. So sure, sure. Yeah, now I'm, now I'm sure. So I nice. found it. Nice. Cool. All right. Well, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I'm glad we got to talk about that. I wish I could have been there to record it. <laughs> well, you can always come up here. You can always come up with, with me to the site and do there some more go. modeling and some yeah, more. Yeah, let's do know, it. Yeah, point provenience, more artifacts. Nice, nice. All right. So uh, we're. I mean, the SHAs is pretty much winding down here. I, th- I know you've got another thing you want to go to today, but uh-huh. um, is there anything of note that you've seen or want to talk about that uh, that you've encountered? Yeah. The um, the SBA meeting, Society of Black Archaeologists meeting, was uh, really powerful this last time. I saw and, I uh, saw a picture. I think on Twitter it was like the largest group oh, yeah. of uh, the largest the largest membership of the SBA in one spot or something. Yeah. They were taking a picture of. So yeah, a ton well, of people. It, yeah, it was the it is the largest group of black archaeologists in the United States that I know of, and it's gone from like eight individuals to thirty something now. Nice since 2011. Yeah, uh, looking at the crowd and thinking about the folks that are there. I would say four or five of those folks didn't have a graduate degree when this started. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was started by uh, Ayanna Fulwellen when she was an undergrad. Yeah. Now she has a PhD. Nice. So it's like, you know, it's growing. It's getting more uh, uh, more noticed from other organizations. Mm-hmm. So there was some folks from the local Boston um, PBS channel, Nova. They're trying to do a series on um, archaeology of slavery and plantations in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so they found out that the SBA was there and that several of the people there do um, uh, archaeology on plantations. Yeah. Uh, There's folks that came from the um, uh, the women's uh, the women's diving hall of fame. Wow. Because they found out that several people are underwater archaeologists. And so they were asking, you know, do you know. Uh, pioneering black women in mm-hmm. the field of scuba. They don't have to be archaeologists. Uh, please tell us because we'd like to add them to this you know, new Hall of Fame. Sure. But they also have uh, grants to teach scuba diving to women. So they also wanted to show up and say, you know, if you want to learn how to scuba dive, here's one way that you can actually get money. I mean, that stuff didn't happen back when it was just eight of us in a room together at the SHA. Right. 
So it's, it's growing. It was really impactful. Some of the stuff that just seeing those networks build like that and seeing it be the kind of thing where you just show up and one hour later, you've already got a connection with someone else and you're talking to students and they're finding out that they can get funding to do these other things that they never thought of. There's a student who worked with us in St. Croix. She's an undergrad and she actually came from her own, you know, money and you know, interest in archaeology. Mm-hmm. She goes to a school that doesn't even have archaeology. Yeah. And she'd never even met anyone black who'd done archaeology before Jeez. or gone to any archaeology site ever before. I can't remember what her major was, but she switched to the history, which is closest at her school. And uh, in the process, she met people. She said she's really interested in doing um, uh, archaeology in the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, here at the conference, she's able to meet folks that, uh, you know, are doing work, historical archaeology there. And, you know, She's a sophomore, but she'll still have time to connect with other scholars, get on field schools and do a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting to see it grow from, you know, a few people, but also to transform into the kind of network that we wanted it to be from the very beginning anyway. It's really awesome to see that progression, too, because, you know, as we all know, there's strength in numbers and you get noticed, and you start doing things. And I think that's one thing that... Uh, it's, it's nice to see that for a relatively small group that's growing and actually already making a big impact with still relatively few numbers overall. Uh-huh. And you look at the whole group of archaeologists and, you know, this is the Sierra Archaeology podcast yeah. and we're a big group of people. And yet we always talk about how we have no power. Yeah. We just don't use the power that we have. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. You know? I mean, we could do so much and everybody talks about unions and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. really just banding together and having like a unified voice uh, in some way, in any way, yeah. would, would make some change. I mean, the, the way that I feel, the biggest way that could happen is if we just, everybody became anti-harassment, anti-racism mm-hmm. advocates, right? E- even because even if, when if it's all you and CRM, your friends out. Yeah. yeah. If, if all the CRM people become against, you know, pro-diversity, pro-inclusion, sure. they take that with, you know, even though we're only a few thousand people, we bring that to our communities. But as far as archaeology overall, that kind of idea could just change the entire field overnight, right? Mm-hmm. Because if the majority of the CRM folks were on board, all the academic, you know, the few hundred academic professors that are out there, they, they just would be out, outmatched, outclassed. Yeah. If everyone from the field tech up to company owners, they're all on board with this. Then, you know, other people that we think that they have all the power, all the professors, I can tell you, we don't have power, but (laughs) we have some power. Yeah. But I feel like all CRM people together have way more power than any academia, any board of directors, any organization. Right. You know, going back real quick at the end of the segment to something you just said about, uh, uh, you know, diversity and and sexual harassment and and things like that, and and just harassment in general. Um, I had dinner last night with uh, Connor from the Life and Ruins podcast and April from the Archaeology Show. And we were actually talking about this. And, you know, it's just, it comes down to, you know, I made the parallel or the analogy of, you know, you're married, I'm married. We've been married for a while, or at least with our spouses for a while, you know, beyond that. And there's always jokes and things that you would say that the society would see as inappropriate that you say behind yeah. closed doors with your spouse, right? Because deep down, we all still find these things kind of funny, uh-huh. this humor that is against another group of people or something like that. And I can't even imagine the jokes you guys talk about because your wife is white and you're black. So <laughs> that must be some <laughs> hilarity ensuing. But uh, <laughs> No, we have no sense of humor. Exactly. We're stoic at every minute. <laughs> exactly. Always PC. That's right. That's right. But it's that same thing happens when you're out on an archaeological crew and you're you're with the same group of people for uh, a long period of time and you're out in the middle of nowhere and you feel like you're isolated it almost becomes like a relationship and then the humor comes in that is um you know not pc humor but it's seen as kind of okay and then somebody else comes on the project that's maybe new in the field and they're not in that group they're not understanding of how Uh that works maybe it's their first project ever and now they're like what the heck have i gotten myself into exactly and if we can just stop thinking there's plenty of funny stuff out there if we can just stop thinking that that kind of humor where it's either racist humor Uh or sexual harassment type humor or or sexual humor entirely if we can just stop thinking that kind of stuff is funny and come up with some better jokes we'd be better off overall there's always more you know bodily function jokes that are even more (laughs) hilarious anyway you know how it goes in the field like Exactly. Yeah, we're all out there. There's, hey, plen- there's plenty to joke about. I just heard a story about somebody who was uh, t- 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 
taking a crap out in the field and they were holding on to a tree as they squatted down and then lost their footing like after oh, and then no. just like fell into it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's funny. No, that is funny. Yeah, that's definitely funny. That's right. That's yeah. right. All right. Well, let's take our last break and we'll come back and wrap this episode up back in a second. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, we're back for our final segment of the Sierra Mark podcast from, I was almost going to say live, but it's live for us, but recorded from... We're still alive. (laughs) I don't know if the people listening to this are alive. (laughs) Who knows? Um, Recorded from the SHAs, uh, the 2020 SHAs in Boston, Massachusetts. So uh, one thing I want to talk about real quick, because my experience at the SHAs uh, and at every conference since I started really promoting digital archaeology, I don't really get to go to a lot of things anymore because I'm stuck in the uh, book room. Sometimes it's with uh, APN booth, but in the last couple of years it's been, and the years before that it was uh, Codify and now um, Wildnote. And I got to tell you, um, some relatively sad news on the archaeology front here. So Wildnote went through this big uh, kind of tech incubator thing over the fall, our CEO did, and she learned a lot of stuff about marketing and uh, the direction that Wildnote should be going and product development and, you know, kind of identifying who your, uh, you know, who your market is. Because as a small company, you can't afford to just go to everything and market to everybody, right? You've got to find who your ideal audience is and, and target them and then try to bring in licenses and monthly recurring revenue to keep your company going, right? Well, the fact is, the last two years I've been working with WildNote, I've talked to a lot of people about WildNote. I've been to, I think, six or seven conferences. I've got two more this year I'm going to where I'm running a booth, talking to people all day long. And I'll tell you what, I've got probably a 1% success rate for bringing people into WildNote. And the sad thing is... Uh, two things are happening. First off, um, people aren't looking at the math problem. That yeah. all this, that's all this. It's an accounting problem. Like, will WildNote save you money? That's how I see that. And they're not looking at that. And, and they're they're resisting, not just WildNote, but they're resisting a digital archaeology shift. But then mm-hmm. the companies that do get it, they're in large part trying to do it themselves. Yeah. Which I appreciate the move to digital archaeology on the one hand. But on the other hand... They also know they need vehicles and they're not building those, yeah. right? They know that they, if they get a vehicle from somebody who knows what they're doing, it's not going to fall apart in the field. But they don't think that that's true with digital archaeology. Yeah. And you need a, a third objective third party, I think, to really build this and maintain it. We have software developers at WildNote, not archaeologists well, who know code. Yeah, so I, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, going to the... ACRA conference in Spokane this, well, it was last year now, 2019. Yeah, in the fall. I heard several companies discuss how they have uh, built their own app and spent, you know, six figures at least building their own app, uh, hiring their own designers, people to build all the stuff for them. And it saves them, you know, 20 to 30% on their rates. They're able to save a lot of money, right? So going Mm -hmm. down the line, they end up, if they can still either get more contracts, they stay economically viable, but if they're still able to charge even close to what their rates were before, they're getting, you know, increasing their profits. But they are all hiring their own software engineers and designers to build it right. and then manage it in-house. And so right now in 2019, we're talking many, uh, the people that are still in archaeology remember what happened in the Great Recession and we were all scrambling and you know all got mm-hmm. laid off. Mm-hmm. So right now when we all have money and we're all ha- pulling down contracts, we can hire you know, Silicon Valley to come and pay them their whatever they want to make to build the software and maintain it all for them. Uh, but what happens when the economy goes down? Sure. Or also, what if you're a small company and you don't have $250,000 to, to hire two designers and all the you know time it takes for them to work with your field crews to build the forms to do it all? 
and then you know I guess what for the foreseeable future forever I should always have a mm-hmm. software engineer on the payroll at the company like you know well let's let's look at that scenario so if you're a CRM firm and you've got the money uh, you've, you've got the money to be able to afford $150,000 to have an app developed for your company right yeah. so you, you get a team or a company that's going to do that and then to have ongoing support you either need to have a support package with that company because let's face it phones and tablets and software changes constantly and mm-hmm. if the if the software on the tablet or device that you're using changes and you don't upgrade your software at least two, one or two cycles in, then your app is going to fail. You lost all your yeah. data. And it's not going to work. Right. So you need ongoing support. WildNote is constantly updating the code. We're constantly pushing changes, especially to Android. Android is like the Wild West. Yeah. And they're constantly pushing updates to, to WildNote, uh, to the Android version of WildNote. A little less so to iOS because it's just a more stable platform. But Android needs updating more often because there's a thousand different Android devices out yeah. there and they all need to be supported. So, um, so, that, so you've got that to worry about. And then so let's say this company for $150,000 or whatever produces this application that you're using, and then you want changes, you want to make additions, you want to add new forms, you want to do something. You've got to consider what does that look like? Did they build an application that is that is robust enough that you can make changes to it? Mm-hmm. And then you're right. Do you have a software on, on the staff? Yeah. Are you going to keep paying someone forever yeah. to do? Because these software developers, I mean, they make 30 to $50 an hour. Yeah. No one else in your company is making that kind of salary. Yeah. Do you have the money to even pay that? Is that sucking up all the savings that you're making uh-huh. by using the application for digital archaeology. And then what happens when the software developer gets tired of just tinkering around with one piece of software? Or they think they can make way more money and they move to somewhere else and make exactly. two times as much because they spent four years building right. your app and now they just take all that knowledge and just go somewhere else. Yeah. Or you've got somebody that's basically working part time for you that's on call and then they're not be they're not able to make changes yeah. on a on a regular basis. It's just not sustainable. Yeah, long-term. I don't I don't know, but I'm but one thing I will say after having been on this podcast for so long, I do I am happy now that when I talk to company owners, they're like, oh well, all our forms are on. You know, can I see one of your forms? All of our forms are digital. Right. It's like, I mean, that's where we're I shifting. Keep, I keep going around. Yeah, all our stuff's digital. Oh, all our stuff's digital. Mm-hmm. I don't know when it happened, but yeah, the bigger companies like they're all on tablets now. Yeah. 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 So maybe they're listening to the podcast. Maybe they are. I hope they are. And like I said, having everybody on tablets just like that alone is amazing, right? It's From amazing. where we're sitting, because yeah. years ago when we were trying to do it and couldn't <laughs> get it done, you know, in yeah. 2010, 2008. Yeah. I mean, and ultimately, as somebody who works for WildNote, although I'll talk about that in a second, you know, I'd love to see everybody on this platform because I know I deeply understand how it's being run. I, I understand the people that are doing it. It's not some faceless Silicon Valley company. It's a bunch of people that not only care about the environment, but, you know, they care about their jobs and doing a good job mm-hmm. at it. And not that other people don't, but I just I have a deep understanding of this company and, and their mission and their goal in lives is not to make a billion dollars. It's to do better for the planet. And along the way, this is how they're going to do that. So, um, But like I said, in the end, I'm just happy that people are going digital and seeing the necessi- yeah. necessity of that. Because I've been trying to get them, you know, I've been talking about that for nine years. Well, they've been listening. Oh, well, yeah, at least yeah. so. But my my role with WildNote is changing. Um, they took me off a salary at the end of 2019. And now I'm back down to a contractor status, primarily because we got a ton of investment. Um, these people see the value in WildNote. And we got a, a lot of investment. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the number, but it's a big number um, at the beginning of December after this uh, Techstars incubator thing that we went to. And as a result of the archaeological and CRM industry not really responding to WildNote, uh, at least not in the time frame that keeps us economically viable, they're scaling us back. So I'm not actively pursuing sales anymore. No one at WildNote is for CRM archaeology. Now, if somebody comes across our door, obviously we'll work with them, we'll talk with them, we'll, we'll sign them up and we'll, we'll get them going, right? But we're not actively pursuing it anymore. They're focusing on the biologists and the wetlands and the um, uh, remedial, uh, like uh, remediation type folks, because they all get it. They're flocking to WildNote in in large numbers. Yeah. And we have a ton of clients that are doing that type of work. And that, because that's the other thing to note, if you're a CRM firm and you're building this application, does it do all the other verticals that your firm does? You know, yeah. do you just do archaeology and that's all you need, but you want to expand into something else, will your app do that? Wildnote will. Wildnote can do all of it, but there's a lot of applications out there that won't. So I don't know. My point is uh, at this conference here, um, it was kind of like 
justifying the decision Wildno has made to kind of scale down archaeology a little uh, bit. Why? Because nobody came and... Well, I, I have a table here for two solid days, and a lot of people come through the room, and a lot of people walk by the table, they see digital archaeology, and they just keep on going. Yeah, and the that ones is that, true. The ones that talk to me, um, well, at this conference in particular, most of them are university-based. Yeah. And even though I tell them that undergrads can use it for free... They still just kind of like, oh, yeah, well, I don't know if we're ready for that, blah, blah, blah. It's like, did you hear me? I said free. So, you know, um, it's just it's a little bit disheartening. And and we're the only uh, aside from Codify, which Mm -hmm. is at the other end of the room, but nobody was sitting at that table the entire three days. So for all intents and purposes, I was the only digital archaeology platform here that's like mobile aside from Interest Registries, which is um, which is also digital. Um, but they're just a little bit different. You yeah. know, if you want a, a nice all around system, we can integrate with Interest Registries, but we're more for field data collection. So aside from that, there wasn't there wasn't really any other options. And yet still people are just not crazy interested in it. I'm interested to see how the Society for California Archaeology meeting yeah. goes in, in March. Well, almost all the companies I know there, they all already have tablet. Yeah. You know. But it's about it's about finding the right, the most cost effective and uh, technologically effective solution. Maybe that's phase two. Maybe phase one was just getting them to realize yeah. the tablet and maybe phase two in the next 10 years or whatever will be. Yeah. How can we actually save money? Because now everybody's doing it. Well, this is one thing I've told the leadership at WildNote is I listen, even if we're not selling them, we need to be at the conferences yeah. because we need to be visible. They need to know that we're still around. And then the next time they decide, hey, what we have isn't working. Half the people that have come to WildNote did have another solution. And that's why they came to us because they're not happy with it. Yeah. You know, so and that's that's the realization I think a lot of people are going to come to. And I just hope they they come to their senses earlier rather than later so they can stop wasting money. Of course, so. use iPads, right? Well, no, I mean, Wildnote uses iPads or, uh, or Android. Codify uses iPads, too. I had to get iPads to be well, able to that, run it. Okay, so briefly, that's the other major thing I want to tell people. You know how many people came up to me and said, I, I had at least five people that I can think of come up to me and said, well, uh, like grad students saying, yeah. I'm trying to find a, a way to put an iPad in my budget so I can do digital archaeology. Yeah. I was like, those are mutually, not mutual. Those are not things you need to do together. Like, I use my iPhone for most of the stuff that I do. Yeah, well, the idea for me to do it was... From uh, working with a guy a long time ago, like 2006 or so, yeah, 2007, and he was working for a company that they were using their phones to do a lot of the like, like a lot of the time card, the yeah. time cards, and also the safety meeting check-ins, but they were using their phones to send data and stuff like that, so... Mm-hmm. They were either taking photos of their field forms or actually putting a lot of the information like the provenience log and the photo log and stuff like that on their phones. And it was really because their phones had the resolution to take photos and stuff like that high enough to meet the requirements of whatever agency they were working for. Right. So right away, the company started being like, all right, we got to get these forms going. And they started that way, then moved to using iPads in the field and just typing it into Microsoft Word documents. Oh my God, that's brutal. That was the beginning. That's the beginning, yeah. 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 And that was, you know, 2006, iPad 1s out in the field, like no no OtterBox, just... Just out in the field. Yeah, an iPad, (laughs) you know, (laughs) with some kind of case on it. And and they, in that company, has gone on to have their own uh, digital recording platform now, Mm -hmm. you know, in-house. Well, I'll just, you know, summarize by saying you don't need an iPad. Uh, If you want iPads, that's great, but you don't need an iPad. And honestly, I think unless you're doing uh, a lot of serious mapping or drawing with it, you're you're typing. You're doing mostly typing yeah. and taking photos. So well, use something I, you're comfortable doing. We need to go back on. through these episodes and find the one where you're like, you got to get an iPad to do it. Well, I, you're right. You're right. That was the. No, I'm just do you know why? I'm giving you a hard time. Do you know why? Because well, I know I, I'm adapted to it, and now I like it, and that's how I do it. So until I went to WildNote. When I was using TapForms uh, yeah. and promoting TapForms, TapForms is iOS only. So the reason I would have said iPad for TapForms is because the iPhone didn't have a high enough resolution camera for work in Nevada. Oh. And the iPad but the did. the iPad did, The yeah. iPad did. And then when I went to Codify, also iPad only yeah. because they're based on FileMaker. Well, I'm on, I'm on Codify. That's, yeah. yeah. Well, and if you're on something that is platform uh, dependent, yeah. then you need to get the best thing you can for that. But we still haven't gotten you know? to the point where I hope we will ever get where the phone is our PC and everything. And we just go to our workstation that has a keyboard. Plug it and, in. Yeah. And it's just yeah. Bluetooth into the, you totally. know, yeah. yeah. I can't wait till we get to that point where I don't even have to have these freaking tablets and, right. you know, well, we'll get there. Indeed. So in the last few minutes here, um, well, first I'll just say, you know, if you're still interested in WildNote, 
contact me, Chris at wildmodeapp.com. <laughs> but you're probably not going to get any calls. Don't from do me. it on your iPad. Yeah, don't do it on your iPad. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Use your Android device. So anyway, <laughs> uh, I want to I want to uh, end this episode um, and say that. I'm going to, we haven't even talked to the other APN hosts about this yet. By the time this episode comes out, I hope I will have, but, uh, there's been some, there's been some tragedy. Let's just put yeah. it that way. Um, with a few of the hosts of the APN and people they're associated with and family members, there've been some really bad uh-huh. things that have happened. And, uh, mental health is something we've talked about yeah. occasionally on this show, but I want to devote, especially coming out of winter, which is a really hard time, uh, and talking about CRM archeologists just to focus on this show people are probably coming off a few months of unemployment (laughs) trying to get into, Uh you know, back into the job market and then back into the, the super lonely, um, existence of a, of a CRM archeologist, you know, shovel bumming around. And I want to try to devote at least one full episode, not to archaeology, but to mental health and maintaining the people in this field and telling them that there's, you know, trying to find some resources yeah. and letting people know that, hey, even if you just send us an email or a phone call or something, uh-huh. my phone number's everywhere on the internet, yeah. you know, and, and just just talk to somebody, Yeah, you know? Well, a couple of things, I mean, I don't know if there's an increase in mental illness or maybe it's just how long I've been in archaeology, but I'm starting to see... Some of the folks that have been doing this for a long time, you know, just really struggling with, you know, mental health issues. Depression, and, yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. anxiety, depression, you know, yeah. that come along with the insecurity of being in a precarious industry. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, disconnect that happens when someone who has put so much into becoming an archaeologist because they have an idea of, you know, how this is going to work out and what kind of a person they're going to be. And then they end up in CRM, which is, you know, like construction job. It's an actual job, right? Sure. So the, the shock and the letdown that it didn't end up being traveling the world and, you know, seeing sites all over the place or constantly digging awesome stuff, you know, and instead we're in these tough situations, right? So that, that kind of effect that happens when you realize that your dream is a job, and now yeah. you've realized your dream, but it didn't end up the way you dreamt it. Uh, a combination with, with just kind of, it seems like, you know, depression that's, uh, many people are just dissatisfied with the way things are going. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, alcoholism, man, alcohol use. Yeah. None of that is, if you have, you know, if you're feeling bad and you are depressed and frustrated, drinking alcohol is one of the worst things that you can do. Right. So, uh, but also that's baked into our culture, which we have talked about. So you, you have a bunch of people around that, you know, uh, accept using alcohol, that alcohol is part of their daily life and part of their, uh, you know, uh, associating with each other. We always have alcohol available to all these archeology span events. We all use alcohol, you know, to differing levels. And, uh, you know, we all accept overuse of alcohol as part of being an archeologist. So, um, you know, I just think it's like, it's a, it's kind of a perfect storm. And unfortunately this last year, it's kind of come to a head, right? With, Mm -hmm. you know, folks coming to the realization that harassment, well, I mean, hell, if you're a woman, you already actually always knew that, right? Sure. But now we are trying to do something about it. Uh, I, for a good reason, Mm -hmm. the fact that discrimination has always been part of this. Mm -hmm. And now that we're trying to do something about that, um, there's just, archaeology is moving in all these different directions. Right. And uh, the mental health issue, it can be really um, discombobulating for someone, for their worldview to get turned upside down because they realize what they're doing is wrong mm-hmm. uh, or that their dream that they thought was going to make them, you know, happy and content didn't turn out to be the same way that they thought. Uh, or if they're in a situation where they use alcohol to excess around a bunch of other people that enable that and encourage overuse. Like, I mean, there's just a lot of things that are going on. on we, we are out there helping communities. We are finding more sites. We're making amazing discoveries about human pasts Mm -hmm. and ultimately making the world a better place because we're learning more about human beings, which helps, you know, the people who aren't archaeologists understand the relationships that we're all in this together. Right. But it's being done by a group of individuals that we really need to take care of each other because, you know, our mental health, first of all, we can acknowledge now, right? You don't have to tough it out. (laughs) You can acknowledge that you need help and that this is an issue. And, uh, if we don't have strong minds and stuff, then this next wave of addressing these bigger issues within archeology span and within our society, we're not going to be strong enough to do it. Yeah. And one of the things that came up at, at dinner last night was, uh, 
a, a kind of a realization I was having that, and I've probably been guilty of this as well. I'm sure we all have at some point without even noticing it, but we've all been on a field project, uh, a CRM project, let's say, uh, where somebody on that project, maybe it was somebody you didn't know very well, maybe it's somebody you know well, but they were maybe not uh, acting appropriate or they didn't, they weren't acting at peak performance. Maybe they seemed down a little bit. But we never, our projects are so short, we never really acknowledge that. We just ignore it for the time that it's happening, and then we move on to the next thing, or we fire them, or we dismiss them. I mean, I've seen uh, lots of people fired off of projects because they were, they were acting yeah. either, they were either doing something inappropriate, drinking heavily, showing uh-huh. up to work drunk, or, or something else. And we never take a step back and look and say, you know what, this isn't just somebody who I either just met or I only see once a year. This is a colleague in a really small field and they're having a hard time right now. Can yeah. we sit down with them and just say, dude, or, or girl, lady, man, yeah. whoever, what's up? Is there something we can help with? Yeah. Do you have, a, I mean, who knows? Maybe they're, maybe they're having a hard time with a family life. Maybe they've got kids they haven't seen in six months because they've been in the field. Maybe their wife just left them or their husband yeah. just left them. You know, I mean, who knows? Maybe they just need somebody to talk to. Yeah. And we need to look at these people as colleagues, not just shovel bumps. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, the biggest thing is I think right now American society is undergoing an awakening, right? Yeah. Many things that we thought we had gotten past, we haven't. Right. That, you know, the world's climate changing will affect people. We are not above being humans, right? (laughs) And then also becoming more aware of ourselves. And I I would really hope that, you know, as far as archaeologists, we would just become more aware of the fact that, you know, sometimes we're not, our minds aren't in the right place. And yeah. You know, sometimes people around us are, you know, compensating for feelings by, you know, taking action or whatever. And, yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't, I don't like for someone to say that, you know, uh, CRM was the worst thing that they ever did, but it's so common for folks to just get in CRM and then it doesn't work out and they're just, they leave and don't have any, you know, don't yeah. have any hard feelings or they feel sad about it. But for them to tell you that my life got better when I stopped doing it, that's, yeah. It should not get no better to not do this, right? How many people do you know that have retired from CRM that weren't principal investigators or company owners? Not very many. No. If any at all. Yeah. Well, retire is even the wrong word. Nobody retired with like financial independence, but I mean, how many people work till old age as a CRM archaeologist? Not very many. There's yeah. been a handful. A lot of them in California, actually. It's weird. But uh, <laughs> like I know a lot of like super old guys in California that were just field techs for 40 years. <laughs> Not me. I'm never leaving. <laughs> That's right. I'll be there till the very end, man. 49 or till the end. I think one thing that helps for the California archaeologists is uh, while there is shovel testing, there's a lot less of it. And a lot of it's just walking in the desert. Yeah. And I think those East Coasters and Midwesters that, that do shovel testing, that just yeah. breaks you way yeah. quicker than just having a walk in the desert does. Yeah. Arizona, there's yeah. a lot of old time sages that have been around for a long time. Yeah, because because they're doing a lot of pedestrian survey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, you know, I, just the entire thing. Um, we don't. We're not psychiatrists. Sure. All we're also learning about ourselves, right? Like, yeah, that we probably should actually talk to folks and be more open about our feelings and what's going on in our lives, right? That's something that. I don't yeah. know, I'm 40, so they told you you just don't do that kind of stuff if you're a guy. You just don't talk about right. your feelings or what's going on. And, you know, by the time you're at this age, you have a lot of thoughts that are going on in your head for decades mm-hmm. that you never actually dealt with in your life. And only now do you get to the point where you think, well, maybe I should actually try to do something about that. So if that's right. you out there, I mean, yeah, it's okay. I don't, I, I mean, we're, we're doing this off the fly, so we don't have resources right in front of us because we don't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> but one of the things, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has been around for a long time. I don't know how effective it is, mm-hmm. but it's free like and it's available and it's in every town. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if that's something that someone else, uh, there's got to be some other kind of mental health mm-hmm. uh, things available in your community. Hopefully a place that you can call. Uh, and, and as we learn more, you know, as the folks on the show learn more, hopefully we'll make those things available. Right. Yeah. And then some people don't like talking about this stuff like yeah. uh, like over voice or like phone. Me. Yeah, well, <laughs> like a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but I have been uh, and I encourage people to do this. Uh, I might not be uh, hopefully I'm responsive but uh, you know, super busy too, but I've been contacted through Facebook Messenger by people I don't know, but they're friends with me on Facebook because I'll friend anybody who says they're an archaeologist yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, me too. 
Um, it's the easiest way to get me. I know, right? Yeah, just like come in and just put archaeology. You don't even need a name, <laughs> and I'll, friend, I'll say yes. That's right. Um, so, so you know, contact us on on Messenger, yeah, on Facebook. Sure. Um, send us an email. Our our Twitter handles are on the uh, um, are on the show notes page for the website. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, just any way that you can. It doesn't have to be by voice. So just come in and say, hey, I'm having, do you have any advice on this? Or like Bill said, we're not therapists, so we can only give you some advice within the context of our own experience. Yeah. Um, but, but at least it's somebody to talk to before yeah. you make any rash decisions. Yeah. So and please do, because that's what this is. Yeah. That's why we're getting this because people have made rash decisions. They're not with us anymore now. That's right. Yeah. There's no sense in that. So, all right. Well, on that note, um, we're going to end this show for the Sierra Archaeology podcast from the SHAs in Boston 2020. Uh, as I said, just and I'll say this a couple more times because there's more episodes coming up, but uh, I'll be at the uh, Society for California Archaeology meeting in the Wild Note booth and, and actually presenting a paper on, on the APN uh, at the end of March and then at the SAAs in Austin, Texas. I'll be in the Wild Note booth there, too. Bill, are you going to either of those? No. Well, I think I'm going to SCA. Yeah. But not Austin. Okay. Um, but also my stuff's available on the internet to my university. They won't let me hide my email. So you can always get me there. <laughs> they won't let you hide it. Nice. I even answer emails from non-students. So nice. Yeah, nice. You know, send those messages. And then the other thing to say though, uh, uh, from my vantage point of what I saw here at this conference, archaeology 2020 is going to be sweet. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. Nice. There are a lot of things that I didn't think were possible. Like me making a 3d model of something is like building sure. Legos. Now. I mean, I didn't <laughs> even know that that's a thing like flying drones to make 3d models of sites. Yeah. Uh, using tablets. What I'm really hoping is that we can integrate the artifact assemblages with our site recording stuff mm-hmm. so that then the catalog is connected to the tablet and the field photos for that unit and the report like all together in one file type i mean we're getting closer and closer to that every day so 2020 looks like a great year for archaeology i think yeah absolutely so that's it from the crm archaeology podcast thanks bill no problem uh, thanks everybody for listening and do feel free to contact us anytime uh just to chat all right we'll see you guys next time take it easy That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.